You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 for our Scripture reading this morning. Mark chapter 6, we will begin reading in verse 33. I'll read from verse 33 to the end of the chapter, the gospel according to Mark chapter 6. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were five thousand men who ate the loaves. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured." I suppose it would be fun if I were able to give a great demonstration uh, this morning of what it was like to walk on water. Uh, uh, We could have filled the baptistry and I could have pretended that it was possible or maybe put some inserts down in the baptistry that you couldn't see, but you could see a little bit of splashing happening. um, But the reality is 
Only two men have ever walked on water, and we will discuss them both uh, this morning. The passage that we're looking at deals with one of them. Um, The other one is telling the story, which is why it isn't mentioned. More on that later. I've titled the sermon, Walking on Water, Jesus Walking on the Water. We use this a lot in our kind of uh, everyday vernacular. You know, it's not like he walks on water or something, or he can walk on water um, because it, it is one of those descriptions, one of those things about Jesus. It's a reality. No one else could do it. Only the God-man and Peter when he was that close to the God-man who was giving him the strength to do it. But really, that's not the overall emphasis of this passage. The, the theme and reality, which I think we'll see develop as we walk through the passage together, is that Jesus is watching you and walking to you and in your midst as you deal with the trials of life, as you deal with your trials of life. Jesus is ministering to our hearts as his people, hearts that are prone to be hardened, but he's not just ministering to our hearts, he's also ministering to our immediate physical needs. We we continue to see this in the miraculous works of Jesus. He meets the physical needs that we have, and he encourages us spiritually. There is almost always more happening than what we are aware of, both within and without. And passages like this, very familiar gospel passages from the life of Jesus, are helpful at pointing that out and helping us to remember that there's almost more happening than we're aware of. I'm going to split the text this morning, verses 45 to the end of the chapter, into three points. They aren't necessarily in order. The first point is the first thing in the passage. Other than that, it's, it's all out of order, but I trust that we'll make sense of it in the end. The first point is creating space. Creating space. The second point, less, the lesson from the loaves. The lesson from the loaves. And thirdly, miracles mentioned. So it's creating space for prayer, the lesson from the loaves, or the failure to learn the lesson from the loaves, and six miracles mentioned here in this brief passage. Six miracles mentioned. We think of one, walking on water. But with Jesus being God, you can imagine that lots that he's doing is miraculous, and so we'll walk through six different ones and seek to benefit from them, seek to learn the lesson from them. First, creating space for prayer. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples, verse 45, Mark chapter 6, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Jesus did what was necessary, getting people away from him and getting away from people so he could spend time in prayer with his Father. He actually commands his disciples to leave. He made them leave. That is, the, the connotation in the original language is by force and persuasion. He forced them to get in the boat and to leave and to go ahead of him to the other side. 
Why might he do that? Well, we can lean on the Apostle John telling us the, this story from his angle, and we begin to understand why Jesus would have, by force and persuasion, made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. John writes, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Remember the context here. Jesus has just fed 5,000 men. He has just blessed and broken five loaves and two fish and fed the masses to the point of being completely satisfied, gorged on what he provided, and they took up 12 full baskets of leftovers. So what do they think? This man ought to be king. Jesus perceives that that's what they're intending to do, to take him by force and to make him king, so he withdraws. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. John continues, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began blowing to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed out about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. And there's a small portion of John's version of this story that we're looking at today from Mark's vantage point. So what's happening here? Jesus has just fed the masses, and the crowd, along with the disciples, evidently are stirred up with messianic fervor. So Jesus forces his disciples to get into the boat and to leave, and then he disperses the crowd. He, he is heading off any spontaneous move to make him king. It's not his time yet. He knows what he's come to do, and he hasn't come to rule over them in a temporal fashion in a way that they desire. They misunderstand his messianic mission at this point, and so Jesus puts the disciples on the boat. He disperses the crowd, and he goes up on the mountain to pray. There are three times in Jesus' life where he gets alone to pray with his Father. The first time when he was selecting his disciples, here's the second time, and the third time was in Gethsemane on the evening before his death. When Jesus breaks away, getting away from the crowd and spends time alone with his Father, what might he be praying for? What does God, a very God, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of the living God, what does he pray for when he gets alone with his Father? probably all kinds of things. There's probably not just one thing. Surely he is expressing some measure of grief that he's experiencing over the loss of his friend and cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist, who has been beheaded. Maybe he's also seeking his father's will with regard to what's next for him, discerning. He, he tells us, Jesus tells us, that he never does anything of his own initiative, but only that which he hears from the Father. It's quite likely that he's also praying for his disciples. Surely he's concerned about their hearts being hardened after seeing so many miraculous works displayed right before them. Surely he's concerned about their temporal infatuation with things and stuff and the here and the now. Surely he's concerned about their fear of man and the lack of faith that is exhibited by the choices that they're making. Surely Jesus is praying for this. 
And in a very real way, he's praying in a similar manner now, coming alongside those of us who are experiencing sorrow and grief. And he's asking his Father to be our comfort in the midst of the grief and sorrow. And surely he's also still asking his Father while sitting at his right hand on the throne of the universe saying, show them what's next, show them my will, reveal your perfect will for their lives. And surely he still sits enthroned in the heavens, petitioning for each one of us, his present-day disciples, asking that our hardened hearts might be softened, that we might be given increased understanding, that we might have less of an infatuation and consumption with the temporal, that we might not have the fear of man in our hearts that we might not lack faith. Have you considered that He is in the heavens, this glorious God-man, praying for you right now? He always lives to make intercession for His people. He is at the right hand of the Father praying for you interceding for you that your faith may not fail. I've prayed for you, he said to Peter, that your faith may not fail. Praying that your salvation will be complete. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Praying that you'll have all that you need to live and to die in him and for him. He has granted to us everything pertaining to life into godliness. Jesus is creating space in the midst of all the action that's happening all around, especially as Mark tells it. It's really encouraging to see that he's creating space for prayer, to seek the will of his Father, to lift up the needs of his people. So, creating space. Secondly, the lesson of the loaves. Verse 52, they, his disciples, had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Isn't that hard to read with any measure of understanding? Surely, if we're honest with ourselves, we are going to argue that if we had watched 5,000 men be fed with five loaves and two fish, that we would not count ourselves in the number of those who gained zero insight from watching it happen. But the fact is, we're right there in his disciples, failing to gain insight from the work that he's accomplished in and through us and all around us. They had not gained any insight, Mark tells us, but their heart was hardened. Psalm 95 encourages us to not have hardened hearts. Do not let your heart be hardened. Come, let us worship and bow down, the psalmist writes. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And here, His disciples 
who are spending day in and day out every waking moment with Him. They gain zero insights from experiencing His miraculous works. Their hearts are hard. What does it mean to have a hard heart? There's a resistance to the Word of God, to the will of God. Consider it specifically with these disciples. They watched the miracle of bread and fish take place. They had front row seats. Right? If, if it's just a magic show and sleight of hand, the people in the back may have been fooled, but not those who are surrounding Jesus as it happens. They watched it happen. They were closer to the action than anyone. They knew the precise details. They knew the number of loaves that he began with. They knew there were only two fish that they obtained from the lad who was wandering around that day. Not only that, they themselves kept coming back to Jesus to get more, to distribute. They, they saw it multiply, as it were, be, just before their eyes and in their very hands as they distributed the bread and the fish. They gathered the leftovers into the twelve baskets. They counted the baskets and spread the word that it would be preserved for us even now, that we would be amazed that they would gain no insight from this incident. What were they missing? There's one primary thing that Mark is hitting on here with regard to Jesus and who He is. What they were missing is that He is God. The God who came to save His people from their sins and to save them to the uttermost. To save and to keep on saving until He puts all of His enemies under His feet. You see, they didn't just miss the point of the lesson of the loaves. They missed the point of settling the stormy seas and calming the swirling winds and healing the crazed demoniac and curing the woman with the issue of blood and raising Jairus' daughter. They were failing to learn the lesson of any of the miraculous works of Jesus. They failed to recognize who He was. Which begs the question for us as we read and consider the miraculous works of our Lord. Are we learning the lessons? Will we learn the lessons from this story? Walking on water. What lesson is there for us? What are the miracles for? And why are there so many? Because our hearts are so hard. Because we're so needy. Because we're so prone to not learn the lesson. We're so prone to not gain any insight from the incidents that our Lord is accomplishing. So, third point. Just a heads up, there's six sub-points here, okay? It's just three points. It's, the, it's an easy way to preach a nine-point sermon, but you just have six sub-points. The miracles mentioned. We'll lean on Matthew and Mark and their version of the story for a couple 
of the specifics or the details here. But why so many? John tells us why, actually, in John 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs, many other signs. We, we don't even have all of them recorded. Many other signs, John writes, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that are recorded, John says, they have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What are the miracles for? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that you may believe that he is the Son of the living God, so that you may believe and have life because of your belief in him. The miraculous works are an amazing display of Christ's power. Many miracles are mentioned. Why? So that we might believe. Because our hearts are hard. Because we're so prone to not believe. Because He desires, God who has preserved these Scriptures for us, desires for us to have life in Him. So He's told us all about His glorious Son. What are the miracles mentioned here in this passage? The first one is seeing them, seeing the disciples. The second one is walking to them. The third one is Peter walking. Fourth, wind stopping. Fifth, crossing over to the other side. And lastly, curing many. So you can see that through... From the reading earlier, Jesus sees them out on the water. He walks out to them. Matthew's version tells us about Jesus, uh, about Peter walking out at least part of the way to him. The wind stopping when Jesus gets in the boat. They cross over to the other side, and many are cured by touching the hem of his garment. So the first one, verse 48. The boat's in the middle of the sea. Jesus is on the land, up on the mountain, praying to his Father, Jesus, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. So we, if you remember from, from John's version earlier, they're three to four miles out. It's the fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It doesn't get much darker than that, especially in the midst of a storm. I was reading one person who was absolutely convinced that Jesus could see them because of the moonlight shining down on the lake. And that, that's a really pretty scene. It just doesn't fit with the storms that are happening. So it's not impossible to see three plus miles, especially being up. And in fact, we, we can see about three miles, not around here because we have mountains, but if it were perfectly flat and boring around here, you would be able to see about, sorry if you're from the Midwest, but... <laughs> you would be able to see three miles with just the human eye. So it's not impossible to see the three miles, but it's very unlikely because it's three to six in the morning and it's stormy outside. So seeing them is miraculous. He's the God-man. Of course he sees his people. But he doesn't just see them in a noticing fashion. He sees them straining at the oars or being harassed by the wind and the waves. It was against them, Mark tells us. Now, th think about the picture here. 
the disciples that were in that boat, not only did they represent the kingdom of God on earth, they were the kingdom of God on earth at that point. And they were together, and they were in danger, and they felt alone. But they weren't alone because they belonged to God, the God who had said to Isaac, I'll be with you. And the God who had said to Jacob, I'll be with you. And to Moses, I'll be with you. And to Joshua, I'll be with you. And to Gideon, I'll be with you. To his disciples, he said, I will never leave you. To us, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wherever we are, if we are his, we are in his view. And he recognizes and sees the difficulties that we're facing in the midst of our lives. He sees you in your difficulty. He cares about that trial that you're facing. He knows that the whole world is against you. He feels the struggle that you're up against. And he will not merely care from afar, sitting on a mountain as they're struggling out in the sea, as it is here in the passage, but he will come near He is the Lord who is near the brokenhearted, the Lord who saves those who are crushed in spirit. He sees them. And so he came to them, continuing in verse 48, at about the fourth watch of the night, between three and six, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, that sounds completely contradictory to what I just suggested. He cares. He cares so much to come near, but not to come all the way. He intends to pass them by. We'll consider that more in just a minute. First, we should be more amazed that he's walking on the sea. (laughs) There's a suspending of natural law that you can't do and I can't do, and no one else has ever done. Now, he's on water, right? He's not walking in the middle of the air. Water does slow the gravitational pull, but it doesn't stop it. You're still going to sink. He's not on a glacier, as some creative intellectuals have suggested. He's not on a sandbar, as other unbelieving fools have suggested. He's walking on the sea. Like, Mark is not a dumb guy, right? He knows how to write he's floating on a glacier or walking on a sandbar. That's not what he says. He says he's walking on the water. Not only that, let's, what was happening to Peter? Did Peter just take a misstep off of the glacier when he falls? <laughs> Why are they out in the middle of the water struggling is worth considering. Imagine this. It's actually obedience to Christ that leads to the trial in the middle of the sea. Do you remember verse 45? Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. They're not in this predicament because of something they did wrong. They're in this predicament because of something they did right. Because of obeying Jesus. Obedience to Christ may bring contrary winds, but it will also result in the presence and peace of Christ. Now, the last time Jesus sent his disciples into a storm on the sea, he went with them. It wasn't that long ago. We considered 
chapter 4, Jesus initiated that journey across the lake in the same way he initiated this one. Not only did he initiate the trip, but he ordered the weather for both of these incidents. He speaks and raises up a stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea, Psalm 107.25 tells us. He's in complete control of even the storms of life, of our lives. He is in absolute sovereign caring, loving, kind control of every detail of your life. He doesn't merely lead us into trials, but he leads us as his people through them. So he went in the boat with them before out into the storm. This time he sends them out alone. He's teaching them, teaching them how to trust him. And because they obey him, they face stormy difficulties, circumstances that are less than ideal. They face a wind that is harassing them, forcing them to strain to move across the water. So he sends them out alone, but he doesn't leave them alone. Verse 48, he came to them. He sees them and he came to them, walking on the sea and intended to pass by them. He sees them in their difficulty, and he walks out to them. He intended to pass by them. What did he really intend to do? Do you remember 1 Kings 19? God to Elijah, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. The Lord was passing by. Or Exodus 33, Moses praying to the Lord, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And we'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show compassion on whom I show compassion. God said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. The Lord said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And shortly after, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then, Exodus 34 tells us, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, Yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. He intended to pass them by. This is what he intended to do to his disciples who were struggling on the sea. He intended to proclaim, I am the Lord, the Lord God. He intended to reveal himself, to reveal his deity to him. I am the compassionate and gracious God. I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth. I keep loving kindness for thousands. I forgive iniquity. I forgive transgression. I forgive sin. 
This is what Jesus intended to do. He intended to pass them by, to show himself as God the Son. That's the lesson they're missing. That's the point of the miraculous works. They obviously do not believe that he's God. If they if they believed he was God, they would not suppose that it was a ghost. They know humans can't walk on water. So they should have immediately known that it was God. Job 9.8, it is God who tramples down the waves of the sea. You can't do it. I can't do it. But God can. Even in the person of his son, robed in flesh like ours, he trampled down the waves of the sea and he made his way to the boat where his disciples were struggling. Jesus in his compassion for and his commitment to his people, intends to reveal himself and his glory and his power to his disciples. Not just here in Mark chapter 6, but right now in your life and in mine. When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. And you want to add there, like a bunch of middle school girls. (laughs) For they all saw him and were terrified. They were bothered because men don't walk on water. But immediately, Jesus spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Be strong, he says. Don't be fearful. How many times thus far has he said to his disciples, do not be fearful? Now, it's unfortunate that the translation there at the end of of that verse, it is I, is not more forthright. The, The original captures it completely. Because what Jesus actually says to them there is, take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. It is the exact I am statement. Take heart. I am your God. Take courage. I am near. I am God. I'm your God. And I'm here. I saw you in your distress. And I've come near. I've trampled down the waves of of the sea to get in the boat to bring peace in the midst of the difficulty that you're facing. Jesus walks on the water. The third miracle, leaning on Matthew's account in chapter 14. It's very likely that it doesn't exist in Mark's account. You may remember that Mark is Peter, most likely Peter's mouthpiece. So Peter's telling the story. By the time Peter's telling this, he, he's not quite that go-getter um, that's very proud that we see on the gospel pages in his life, but he doesn't reference that remarkable event. This is what Matthew says about it. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Notice what Jesus said to Peter, come. You remember what he said with the issue of 
of the loaves last week? You give them something to eat. These impossible commands from Christ that come with the ability to provide if we humble ourselves and lean on Him and depend on Him. Peter takes his eyes off Jesus. He's consumed with the wind and the waves, the stuff going around him. He begins to doubt within, and he sinks, begins to sink as a result. And Christ rescues him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? May God help us to not be men and women and boys and girls of little faith who are marked by doubt. May he help us to believe. And when the unbelief creeps in, may we be quick to pray, Lord, save me, the way that Peter did, that we might experience again and again the outstretched arm of Jesus taking hold of us and drawing us near. They all saw him. They were terrified. He said, take courage, I am. Fear not. Then, verse 51, the fourth miracle, Jesus got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. He just got into the boat, and the wind stopped. Last time, remember, when he was with them already, he spoke to the wind and the waves. He doesn't even speak this time. The one who created the wind and the waves can calm them with his very presence. Again, Psalm 107, he spoke, God spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Christ has done it once And now we see him accomplishing it again. And they were utterly astonished. They were a little bit more convinced, we might say, that he is certainly God's son. They're utterly astonished. That is, the miraculous deeds of Jesus are accomplishing their intended purpose. So that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name. Fifth miracle. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. We'll lean on John here who writes about this detail, they were willing to receive him into the boat. So Jesus got into the boat, the wind and the waves stopped, and immediately, John writes, immediately or at once, the boat was at the land to which they were going. They were not quite or maybe halfway there. Jesus gets into the boat, and they're there, just like that. Why? Why might that happen? Why, why does John record it in that way? Why is it emphasized? Why do they point out getting across? Most likely to encourage us who are Christ's disciples that not only when we are struggling with the trials of life, not only does Christ see us 
and come to us and draw near and bring peace. But he guarantees that the affliction will be light and momentary in this life. Just like that, they crossed over. And the story doesn't stop there. When they got out of the boat, immediately people recognized him. They ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. He cured many. But consider the confidence that is increasing in the people around him in his ability to heal. Their confidence is not much in him being the Messiah. It's not much in him being the Son of God, but the works were miraculous, and people are affected by it. Many of these people who lacked faith, they're running here and there to bring the sick to Jesus. Oh, how we ought to seek to run and bring those who need Jesus to him, taking Jesus to them, having confidence that as many as touched it were being cured. All who come to Christ will be saved. He will in no way cast any of them out. Not you. If you come to Christ, you will not be the first one that he turns away. He welcomes all who come to him. There's really a wonderful picture of the gospel here in this story. We are, as fallen humanity, as helpless as the disciples were in that boat in the middle of the night, pitch black, wind-blowing, furiously fighting against the wind in futility, making no progress, unable to do any good thing, and Christ came. God sent His Son into the world to save us from our sin. Why not believe in Him? Why not trust Him? And then He sends his disciples, out into the surrounding areas. He sends us out into the world. But he doesn't send us without keeping his eye on us, watching, and not just walking, watching from afar, but walking to us, as it were, in the midst of our trials, he draws near again and again, bringing peace in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of trying circumstances. If you're not in Christ, you should run to Him and find forgiveness for your sins. He intends to pass you by like He intended to pass His disciples by. Not to get real close and then go the other way, but to show Himself. God Almighty, compassionate and gracious, gracious willing to forgive. And if you're in Christ... If you're a disciple of His, if you're in the ark of God, in the boat, Christ sees you. He sits enthroned in the heavens, and He sees you always. He, and He desires us to have faith and to not fear. He calls us to accomplish eternally significant things. He told His disciples to go across the sea, and the wind was proving quite difficult. 
But he doesn't just call us to do eternally significant things without providing the strength and the courage to do so. Take courage. I am. Fear not. Take Peter, for example. He calls us to do impossible things like getting out of the boat. For some of us, that might be sharing the gospel with a coworker, with a friend or family member. Get out of the boat and keep your eyes on Jesus. He'll give us what we need. And when you do find yourself sinking in life, pray, Lord, save me, and reach out for him, and he will save you again and again. That's the testimony of so many of you. And not only that, we will all one day cross over. All storms of life will come to an end. All affliction of this life is light and momentary, and all of it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that will be ours in Christ Jesus. The trials that we are facing will not last forever. They are temporary. Life in Christ is forever and ever. These, these miraculous deeds of our Lord are recorded that we might believe and have life, eternal life in Him. Christ will keep us forever and ever. He will keep His eye on us, and He'll keep walking out to us, and keep reaching out to save us, and keep us moving toward the final goal of full redemption in Him. We're going to sing in just a moment. Highest heights or darkest deep, be there pain or poverty, there is nothing that can keep my Redeemer's love from me. Nothing. All alone, though I may feel all the world my enemy, Still, there's no one that can steal my Redeemer's love for me. Although burdened by the weight of great trial or tragedy, none of these can separate my Redeemer's love from me. Though the earth's foundations shake, driving wind or raging sea, neither death nor life can take my Redeemer's love from me. Through this world's few passing days and through all eternity, I will never cease to praise my Redeemer's love for me. Oh, the love of my Redeemer, never failing. Come what may, He has purchased my forgiveness and has washed my sins away. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank You for Your Word for the truths it contains. We thank you for your spirit and we pray that your spirit would take the reality of who you are in Christ for us and press it home on our hearts. Initially for those who don't know you and afresh for every one of your children. God, we long to know you, to worship you, to live for you. We thank you for the confidence that we have in You, that You sent Your Son to save us from our sins. And after dying and being raised again and being ascended on high and leading captives captive, that He sat down at Your right hand where He ever lives to make intercession for us because we're Yours.
God, we thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves. And even in the midst of the difficulties that we face, the battle of sin within and the battle of the world without, God, we thank you that Christ is in the ship, that he is our hope, that he has come again and again, and he does reach out and save us. God, keep our hearts from being hard. Help us to believe you, to trust you, and to spend our lives bringing others to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.